get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another very special episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Uh, Look, I know I say this every time I do a proper full-on album review episode, but yeah, This really has been a very, very, very long time coming. And, yeah, I always say that I'm going to go right into the next album review as soon as I finish one of these episodes, and Flowers in the Dirt was no exception. And at the time of recording, that was now released, is it like a year ago or something? It can't be a year, but yeah, it's definitely over six months. Hardly the fast turnaround I know you all would prefer. Still, for you paying patrons out there, you will all by now have heard the conversations I had with Ken Michaels already about the songs of Off the Ground, and that will be the part two to this one. I'll get that out much quicker than this one, trust me. However, that was literally recorded midsummer. It's now October, so yeah, again, sorry about that. But it's not like you've been without content, just that I may have gotten a little distracted by other episodes and purposely delayed this one, just because I knew it was going to be a lot of work. These episodes always are, they require a lot of research, but I like them to be good, I like them to be quality. So, mm, what are you going to do? Anyway, back to today, we are back with another classic solo episode of the show, and it really feels like it's been ages since we've just had a little one-on-one here. So I'm glad we could have some intimate time together. And what better topic to chat about than Paul McCartney's 1993 album, Off the Ground. As always, this is an album that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about. As a break from trends, our last episode, Flowers in the Dirt, was an album that mostly everyone loves from one degree to another. But with Off the Ground, we are firmly back within the world of mediocre reviews, split fandoms and divisive songs. You hear all sorts of things about this album, the overall track selection, the production, Paul's songwriting at the time, the accusations of over-politicisation in the lyrics. There's a lot to cover, and whilst me and Ken do mostly cover all of that in part two, I will be seeking to explore, refute and reverse many of those views on this episode today. Pretty standard format really folks, we're going to go through a bit of Paul's life from between these albums, before going through the album's recording, the band, the artwork, the producer, the critical reception, sales, trivia, and any other bits that might take my fancy. Also, just before we begin, I can't not mention this, but I have a friend from both school and university called Chris, and he and his dad's band is called The Lady Killers, and one of their albums is called Off The Rails, and it's them all jumping off the train tracks, and this album always reminds me of them, so shout out to Chris. Anyway, before we can do any of that, though, let's just quickly get through the housekeeping. So, what do we have in terms of news for today, folks? Firstly, in rather sad news, this happened a, uh, a couple of weeks ago now, but I haven't put out an episode for a couple of weeks. We had the death of Lizzie Bravo, one of the original Apple Scruffs, one of the voices you hear on the original recording of Across the Universe. Now, I wasn't all too familiar with Lizzie and her place in the community, but from all the wonderful tributes I've heard and everything I've read online, she 
was seemingly one of those real stalwarts, you know, one of those people that has always been there for and as a part of the Beatle community, and her loss really is tragic, so rest in peace, Lizzie. In terms of releases, first of all, we've had Grand Dude's Green Submarine, which is the sequel to Hey Grand Dude, one of Paul's children's books, and yeah, I'll be doing a full episode review on that, because yeah, it'll take a lot less work than the episode you're listening to right now. But in terms of more major releases, first of all, we've had the Beatles Get Back book from Callaway Publishing. Thanks to Callaway Publishing for sending me a free press copy of the book that did not make me feel very special, though unlike a lot of the other YouTube channels and podcasts I've seen where they review the book the day of release, that really isn't my style, most because A, I was working on this episode, but B, you can't review a book the day you get it, you know, it's just going, ooh, it's got a nice cover, nice cardboard, nice finish, nice pictures, I'm going to wait till I've read the book a couple of times and digested it and taken it in, and then I'll talk about it. Speaking of things to do with the Get Back slash Let It Be sessions, we've also had the release of the Let It Be 50th Anniversary box set. Oh, this is what I'm going to be looking forward to talking about as well. I recently received my 5LP version of the box set along with the book. Again, I'm not going to talk about it the day of release because there's so much to talk about. I have listened to it all, but I want to get through the book as well, get the whole Let It Be 50th Anniversary box set experience down to a T. I'll probably talk about it in the same episode as the Get Back book as well. And finally, folks, uh, something that mostly will be of import to fans of this podcast more than the other ones, but um, I'm sure you've all seen on Netflix right now um, the show Squid Game. It's still number one here in the UK at time of recording this. It's Netflix's most watched series here in the UK. I'm sure it's doing the numbers over in the States as well. But uh, (laughs) one of the characters in Squid Game, one of the evil capitalist overlords that are putting the main protagonists through the titular Squid Game, I think it's uh, evil man number three or head honcho number three, businessman number three in the credits. That's what he's credited as is none other than Paul or Nothing guest Jeffrey Giuliano. Yes, folks, Jeffrey Giuliano is now in one of Netflix's most successful franchises of all time. The one man on earth who did not need an ego boost has just gained one of the greatest ones ever. His social media, which I do follow, is daily flooded with the screens of likely what is his one or two scenes. I haven't actually watched it, can't be honest. Uh, in Squid Game. I'm sure if I ever have him back on the show, he will talk about it to no end. How is he in this show, you might ask? Well, Jeffrey's not living in the UK or America. He lives far, far east now. I can't exactly remember where. It might be Thailand or something like that. But the production of Squid Game was in the area. And, you know, I'm sure they thought that adding Jeffrey would add some marquee value, perhaps. I don't know. But yeah, he managed to get involved in this production and now he's in one of Netflix's biggest shows ever (sighs) life's very cruel isn't it anyway that's enough of the news let's get through the plugs and the socials to get in contact with the show email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com I always love reading out your correspondence here on the show including our first email today from one Simon Rogers slash Roger Simons aka 
the London editor of Beetle Fan magazine, who is also a guest on Macca in Your Attic, aka one of my very best Beetle friends. And when he saw that I was struggling to find unique details or topics on this album, he sent this in. It reads, Hi Sam, really enjoying the show. I must admit, I got really nostalgic when I read your tweet about your Paul or Nothing special on Off the Ground. <laughs> a special, oh, thank you. I must admit, I was rather disappointed when I first bought the album. I now realise that, with the passing of time, it's probably because his last effort, Flowers in the Dirt, was just so strong. But, as with every McCartney LP, it is a yin and a yang. For every tepid biker like an icon or piece in the neighbourhood, there is the wonder of something like Golden Earth Girl or Mistress and Maid. The album has certainly grown on me over time. It always shocked me how poorly the album sold in the UK, and yet would go to platinum in Germany, of all places. There are also some cracking B-sides from the sessions, and I would highly recommend the German Off The Ground The Complete Work CD. I also believe it was sold in the Netherlands as well. What really hit home was just how active Paul McCartney's fan club, or to give it its proper title, Fun Club, was at the time. 150 members of the Fun Club were asked to take part in the Hope of Deliverance music video. The sight of tour hardened McCartney fans doing a dance routine for the video will stay as one of my most favourite bizarre moments of being a McCartney fan. I will save the story of how one fan single-handedly stopped the video shoot and nearly caused a riot for your Paul McCartney video episode series. Anyway. Members of the Fun Club were also invited into the Docklands area on February 5th, 1993 to watch the dress rehearsal for what became the New World Tour. The 90-minute set list would add two further songs, Magical Mystery Tour and Paperback Writer, when the tour started properly. Beforehand, Paul held a 29-minute press conference. He announced the New World Tour and answered various questions from the press. I remember British journalist Piers Morgan had slated the album in the Sun newspaper and got a bad reputation when fans booed and catcalled him when he turned up for the press call. I think everyone listening to this podcast should know who Piers Morgan is by now. He's very much hated here in the UK and I'm glad to see that you Yanks are catching up with that hate also. Anyway, Roger continues... For most UK fans, the fondest memories of the Off the Ground period would be the three nights Paul played at London's Earl's Court on the 11th, 14th and 15th of September 93. I, for one, would love to see an archive release of Off the Ground and here's hoping it includes the excellent documentary on the making of the album titled Moving On. Keep up the good work, Simon Rogers slash Roger Simons. Thank you for that, dude. Uh, you know, thank you so much for writing in. It's always great to have your correspondence here on the show. Hopefully, we'll, we'll be meeting up soon. We had a lovely drink in Birmingham a few months ago. I'd love to do the same again. But just to take you up on a few points there, <laughs> I would certainly love to have a copy of the Off the Ground The Complete Work CD. But like most obscure McCartney bootlegs, it is well beyond my price range. Um, I will definitely be doing episodes on Paul's uh, gigs at Earl's Court. That will be something I'd really like to do in the future. And, oh my God, when are we getting the Off the Ground Archive release? In doing the research for this episode, I've totally fallen in love with the majority of the album. I, I really didn't like Side 2 when I got into this, but even that's grown on me like a fungus. And 
there is just so much content that could be put on that archive release and hopefully it would totally negate my need to get the complete work CD because I mean they, they would just have to include all the b-sides wouldn't they and if they didn't it would cause as much uproar as the recent let it be box set anyway thank you for that Roger if you want to be like him send in an email to paulbuconypod at gmail.com but if you want instant access if you want to Hit me up right away on some instant messaging or just see what I'm up to every day. Follow us on our Twitter page, which, which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul or Nothing written content, check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on our socials. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, the YouTube page is the only place where you can watch brand new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, the little side spin-off series that I do every week with a, a different guest where they take me through their attic, we dust off some cobwebs and they show me five interesting, insightful, rare, sentimental or just straight-up funny items from their Paul McCartney slash Beatles collections. You can also check out new episodes on our Patreon page, but I'll talk about that in a moment. If you'd like to help out the show directly, then I would really appreciate you leaving us a review on whatever platform you are listening to this show on. It takes less than 30 seconds in theory. Please leave us as many stars or as thumbs up as you can afford to give. And hey, if you want to say something nice in the comments, that's also greatly appreciated. And finally, if you want to help out the show more directly, if you want to help see the show grow, if you want to help keep the lights running, or just help me acquire new product for you to review and me to show off on social media, then please consider joining our Patreon page. Patreon, as I'm sure you know by now, is a platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. And, yeah, it just allows me to do poor or nothing more often, more regularly, and with greater gusto. First, I'd like to thank Mark Slade. He's our latest patron. Thank you so much, Mark. I hope you are enjoying all of the bonus content you are getting. And I'd like to give a quick shout out to Chris Atkinson, who has recently upped his donation. He's really putting his money where his mouth is. But folks, these two people are not just here to throw money at my face. No, they are getting extra content. First of all, you get a two-day early access pass to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get to listen to it before anyone else. You get one week early access to episodes of Macca in Your Attic, if that's your bag. The main one, though, the main boon, especially in regards to this episode, is the Paul or Nothing video feed. I record everything on Zoom now, so anything I record with someone else goes immediately on the Patreon video feed. For example... I spoke with Ken Michaels in the summer about the songs from Off The Ground and you could have watched it by now. You could have actually gotten your Off The Ground fix months in advance. You also get access to lost episodes, certain bonus episodes that I'll never release anywhere else, as well as all the scripts that I make for Paul Warnoffit. You can just see how heavily scripted this show is yourself so yeah loads of bonus content there for you folks and as always i'd like to give a shout out to the entire poor or nothing family here so i'd like to give a shout out to new patron mark slade once again as well as andy cochran guy jenkinson richard campbell kim christopher newman mrs p roderick harper moti ryber 
Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, my editor, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips, who you heard on a very recent episode. Right, folks, that is everything. Let's move on to the main episode, and let's have a little quick catch-up with what Paul has been doing. So yeah, folks, you must know these quick catch-up sections by now. This is the part of the episode where I get to learn just as much about Paul and Linda as you do concerning what they were up to between Flowers in the Dirt and Off the Ground. This is all mostly bonus material if there ever was any, but I've always had a soft spot for this particular section as not only does it give a greater amount of detail and context as to the the who, the what, the when, the where of McCartney's life, but it also hopefully goes some way in helping to dispel the myth that McCartney wasn't making all the moves all the time. Like, this isn't the late 80s or anything whereby people think Paul is doing nothing and failing. You know, as we're going to see right now, Paul was doing fucking loads in the early 90s. Like, as in modern McCartney amounts of work here. He had his fingers in all the pies. There were so many different projects going on, and none of them were alike at all. He really was pushing out the bow and exploring who he was as an artist. So, in my humble opinion, this might be one of the most exciting times to be a McCartney fan, even if you didn't particularly like the album. Of course, the main difference between the release of Flowers in the Dirt and Off the Ground is the fact that he had been on and smashed one of the largest world tours of his day. Now, I was indeed at some point planning on doing a proper episode on this world tour, the 89-91, but my Tripping the Life fantastic double episode with Dylan CV had already covered all of the music. Go and check that out if you haven't already. And so, instead, I'm going to be giving... You know, something in between a more in-depth and a Cliff Notes version of all of this info. You know, just so you have proper context as to how massive it was. I just don't think that there'd be enough to do a full episode. So anyway, this tour was known as the Paul McCartney Tour, 89-90, or the Paul McCartney Get Back Tour. And it was absolutely the biggest thing he or pretty much anyone had ever done at the time. And it made Wings Over America look like the Wings University Tour. It was his first official solo show, and suitably, it was the first tour to bear his name and his name alone. Now, I was going to get all the info together to illustrate this point, but rather handily, McCartney's own website has a wonderful little summary on all the need-to-know information. It reads, Incredibly, the Paul McCartney Get Back Tour of 89-90, his first since 79, travelled 100,331 miles, with Paul playing to a total of 2,800,000 fans over 102 gigs. At the Maracana Stadium in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, on April 21st, 1990, Paul even set a new world record, performing to the largest stadium crowd ever gathered in the history of rock and roll, at a total of 184,368. Unsurprisingly, this tour was the most successful of Paul's illustrious career. In America, Paul became the artist with the most ticket sales in 1990, an average of nearly 50,000 per gig, 
beating the likes of Madonna, The Grateful Dead and Janet Jackson. The highlight of the tour for Paul was when he played to over 50,000 people on the banks of the Mersey. The biggest gig he had ever had so far in his hometown of Liverpool. And at the end of the John Lennon medley, the band stopped playing Give Peace a Chance only for the crowd to carry on chanting the lyrics, forcing Paul to restart the song. That, he said, was one of the greatest moments of my career. That is what you do it all for, really. Now, the incomparable website, thepaulmccartneyproject.com, lists the tour as having two extra dates at 104 across 13 countries, and this is because they do include the two dress rehearsals at the London Playhouse Theatre at the start of the tour that Roger slash Simon alluded to in his email. Also, a couple of other fun facts that I picked up from the accompanying documentary From Rio to Liverpool, narrated by John Hertz, about the mechanics of the tour itself, include facts such as the equipment used, including the stage, weighed a total of 178,000 kilos, which is about 500,000 pounds, and it required a small army of 250 people over 12 hours to put together. The stage itself was 240 feet wide, over 100 feet high, and was transported in 17 trucks to all said countries. Yeah, that's a lot of overhead, literally and figuratively. Also, here's a quick rundown of the countries and number of gigs Paul played therein. There were 21 shows in England, one in Scotland, one in Norway, two in Sweden, nine in Germany, four in France, two in Switzerland, three in Italia, two in Spain, four in the Netherlands, 44 in the United States, two in Canada, six in Japan, and two were back in Brazil. Now, whilst there isn't a full list available of exactly how much money was made and how many tickets were sold for every gig on this tour, we do have some information, mostly from the latter American shows, but let's just run through a few of them so that maybe we could build a financial picture. The smallest one I could find was at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, with a respectable 14,500 tickets sold for the show on the 12th of February 1990, for a total of $414,533 made. Yep, that's a lot more than my Patreon. <laughs> then, a more average one would have been the show at Soldier Field in Chicago. A far more impressive 55,600 tickets were sold on the 29th of July 1990, for a total of $1.8 million. Well, nearly one9 actually. Yeah, that's a lot. And finally, on the upper end of the scale, we have two shows at the California Memorial Stadium in Berkeley. Over the two days, 118,300 tickets were sold for a total of 3,500,000. Of course, you could divide that over the two days, but then that would ruin my statistics. Also, if we were able to get the sales figures information on the record-breaking show in Brazil, I'm sure we would see some truly astronomical figures and a pretty little paycheck for MPL. Of course, we know that this world tour didn't just spring up out of nowhere, and it was set up in conjunction with the post-release period of the moderately successful yet highly rated Flowers in the Dirt album. Now, I'm only really bringing this up because one of the criticisms hurled at Off The Ground is that it was an album that existed merely to promote the New World Tour, which is absolute bollocks. The New World Tour was probably always going to happen with or without Off The Ground, but Paul likes to tour a new album with new songs, or at least he did back in the day, at least. And 
to call Off the Ground an album that only exists to support a tour is not only very disingenuous, but it's also another classic example of people making theories to suit facts rather than facts to suit theories. Because by that logic, then Flowers in the Dirt was just an album that was created for Paul to start his touring days off again, which we know it wasn't. And still, I don't even know why that's an insult. Do you not want Paul to go on tour? Do you want Paul to have the fixed set list an extra 10 years earlier? I don't know what people want here. You know, they slightly don't like the album, so therefore they're going to hurl all these other incorrect accolades at it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Something else kind of related to this album, even if tangentially, was how political Paul was getting on this tour. As he explains in the aforementioned behind-the-scenes documentary, Paul was very wary, always was, of being direct and in-your-face with his politics, and he's always preferred the more subversive, interpretive messages of his songs. However, in a run-up to more overtly political tracks like Looking for Changes, Dealing with Animal Testing and Cruelty, and Big Boys Bickering, which lambasts politicians, Paul had already joined forces with the Friends of the Earth Foundation. On the tour, Paul would stop every show and give a speech or two about how we should all live in a clean world, and if we wanted it, to write to our politicians, which is a sentiment that is as wholesome as it is naively misguided. But yeah, here's a little excerpt from the ever-reliable Wikipedia. As per its website, the current campaign priorities of Friends of the Earth internationally are economic justice and resisting neoliberalism, forests and biodiversity, food sovereignty, and climate justice and energy. Additionally, the Friends of the Earth also plans campaigns in other fields such as desertification, Antarctica, maritime mining and extractive industries, and nuclear power. In 2016, Friends of the Earth also led a campaign on the consumption and intensive production of meat. Now, I am going to have to get on my soapbox again here, folks, because why is Paul being more politically avert a bad thing? I mean, he's been singing about peace and love and understanding for years by this point and seeing very little change. So in his middle age, it makes total sense that he would start to get a little more upfront with his feelings. Why is Paul only allowed to sing through veiled metaphors and symbolism? Why can't he speak openly? Is it because that guilty fans are still in the majority voting for the wrong political parties and still being ostensibly meat eaters? Does that make them feel guilty? Does it highlight inadequacies in their lives? You know... (laughs) Paul puts his money where his mouth is, he fights for conservation, he, you know, he campaigns for hippy-dippy left-wing causes, and he doesn't eat meat. Now, if you love Paul McCartney and like his music, then surely you should be leaning towards those ideals anyway. You know, if that truth is too much for you to bear, then maybe you should go and listen to Cliff Richard or something. He's not going to challenge your sensitive ideals, folks. I mean, I don't even know how you can be right-wing and be a fan of Paul's as he is so clearly a leftist. And no matter how hard you try to ignore it, that's the kind of person he would like you to be too. And finally, at the end of this rant, I'd also like to ask you, why is it okay for John Lennon, uh, a known heroin addict, wife-beating, child-beating, violent man, to be politically outspoken and not for Paul? 
maybe we need to assess ourselves before decrying Paul for writing something other than another silly love song. Finally, if that was a bit too much for you, you could have just read all of it in the tour booklet because that's where the real lion's share of the text was hidden. And speaking of the tour book, the promotional material for this tour, together with the stage sets, were designed by regular McCartney collaborator Brian Clark, who, together with Linda McCartney, designed the album cover for Flowers in the Dirt. Right, that's the end of the world tour. That's probably the last we're going to talk about it here on the show. So let's move on to what else Paul was doing in this period. For those of you who listened to my recent episode with Dr. Duncan Driver, then you'll be all too aware of the fact that Off the Ground was not the first album McCartney put out after Flowers in the Dirt. Yes, I am, of course, referring to the incredible MTV Unplugged, the official bootleg album. And whilst, like the last topic, I'm not going to go into too much detail, as I would much rather you go back and listen to the episode with Duncan Driver, if you haven't already, or, you know, listen to it again if you have. But I do want to highlight some things that relate to today's story. First of all, the album was a success, comparatively anyway. Of course, we know that Flowers was a number one hit here in the UK, and an annoyingly low 21 in the US, but Unplugged got a much higher average overall, with it being number 7 here in the UK and number 14 in the US, going directly against the notion that Paul was unpopular at this time and not shifting vinyl. Secondly, this live performance was performed with the band, aka the band that accompanied him on tour, and the band that would record off the ground with him. As we'll discuss later on, much of the album was done live and much of the album was done with acoustic guitars. So it's safe to say that the quality and arrangements of Off The Ground are no mere coincidence. Okay, so we've established that Unplugged was the other major release from the inter-album period, but it wasn't the only one. No, we had a minor release in the McCartney canon, or if you're Alan Cozen, another major one, And of course, I am referring to Paul's first foray into the world of classical music, the Liverpool Oratorio. Of course, I'll be eventually doing an episode on this in the future, and so unlike the world tour discussion, this really will be a Cliff Notes version, and so not to spoil future content for you to download, I mean listen to. It was composed in collaboration with Carl Davis, who we'll mention later in this episode, to commemorate the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra's 150th anniversary. Consisting of eight movements, the story of the oratorio loosely follows McCartney's own life, with the main character, Shanti, who is born in 1942 Liverpool, and raised to believe that being born where you are born carries with it certain responsibilities. Very Spider-Man-esque there. After his school days, where he often sagged off, Liverpool slang for skipping class, Shanti begins working and meets his future bride, Mary D. Following the death of his father, Shanti and Mary D are married and are forced to deal with the rigours of balancing a happy marriage and their careers. Amid a quarrel, Mary D reveals that she is pregnant and, after surviving a nearly fatal accident, gives birth to their son. Thus, the cycle of life in Liverpool carries on. The commercial reaction for the work was strong, with the oratorio spending many weeks atop their classical charts worldwide and even charted at number 177 in the regular charts in the US, possibly the billboard. The critical reception was less positive though, the virtually unanimous verdict being that the work, while attractive, was simplistic, overlong and given its aspirations, insubstantial. 
Now, whilst this wasn't the smash hit that I'm sure Paul wanted it to be in terms of commercial music, it's still a prime example that he is more than capable of doing well in other markets. He was pushing the boundaries of what he could do, what the Paul McCartney sound slash brand could be, who Paul McCartney fans could be, where his music could be played and in what context, and again, proving that this was anything but a fallow period in his recording career. And still, folks, we are not done in terms of Macca albums, as this period saw another arguably minor, arguably major release from Paul. I mean, fuck, he really was cranking shit out at this period when compared with the 80s, wasn't he? Making it for lost time, maybe. And what release am I talking about here? Well, of course, I'm talking about the Paul McCartney album that was never advertised as a Paul McCartney album, a.k.a. Strawberries, Oceans, Ships, Forest, by the mysterious artist known only as The Fireman. If you don't want spoilers for our inevitable Fireman side series, then please skip ahead a minute, but for those of you out there who haven't worked out why I haven't brought this up on a Paul McCartney podcast, then let me inform you that McCartney himself is indeed The Fireman. Well, that's not entirely true. The Fireman is a duo made up of McCartney and the musician-artist-producer who goes by the moniker of Youth. Rather interestingly, in a very Percy Thrillington kind of way, neither McCartney nor Youth are credited on the album, and after many, many months of rumours, McCartney and Youth's involvement was eventually confirmed by EMI. The project began when McCartney asked Youth to remix several tracks from the Off The Ground album for use on possible 12-inch singles. Eventually, McCartney decided to join Youth in the studio to create new music to add to the tapestry along with the existing samples, including the inclusions of both Reception and the Broadcast from Wings' 1979 album Back to the Egg, and the project became a more collaborative effort. Although originally conceived as a series of 12-inch remixes, McCartney became so enamoured with the results of the sessions that the project became a full-length album. Now, whilst the album didn't chart here in the UK or the US, making second-hand copies very pricey indeed, go and check out previous episodes of Mac It In Your Attic to see what I mean, what this album did do was prove that Paul didn't always need to work on albums that are aiming to be massive radio hits. I'm sure he could have attached his name to this project and helped sell a few more units, but he didn't. He was too committed to the idea of the fireman to ruin the fun like that, and it shows his dedication to the craft during this period, as well as his reluctance to overshadow his partner in crime youth. Also, what this collab highlights is that Macca was actually a lot cooler and a lot more hip and down with the kids than people from this time would have given him credit for. He was still interested in making modern, youthful music that was not intended to end up on the adult contemporary charts. I mean, again, he could have changed a lot of opinions about his sound had this been an official McCartney release, but no, this is The Fireman, and that's the end of that. Pressing on, and something I've been slightly remiss in not informing you folks of sooner, has been Paul's annual Buddy Holly night as part of the annual Buddy Holly week. The night is usually a big get-together for famous Buddy Holly fans and people in the industry to have a good old knees up, piss up, and to sing some of Buddy's three-chord classics on the stage together. Sadly, after the death of Princess Diana, who was one of the main patrons of this evening, 
it stopped. And I, to I totally get that. That's very much in Paul's style. For those of you not in the know, Paul is a mahusive Buddy Holly's aficionado, to the point whereby he bought the rights to Buddy's whole discography and even recorded an album of covers with Denny Lane. See episodes pass him. Every year, there was a rotating group of who's who's famous folk, like I said, but unfortunately, the main figure Paul was pictured with in 1992 was Gary fucking Glitter. Yeesh. I mean, along with the Jimmy Savile stuff, it kind of makes Paul look a bit blind and a bit silly. But anyway, moving on. Also, on the 7th of September, the same year, there was the release of Buddies Buddies, a new compilation album of Holly covers from the archives, masterminded by MPL's own Alan Crowder, and was issued by the specialist collector's label Connoisseur Collection. The album was then officially launched with a party at lunchtime in London two days later. Christ, how many Buddy Holly-based parties do we need? Right, from one McCartney to another, we do indeed have quite the bit of Linda McCartney news this episode. And to start us off, we have the expansion and continued slow but steady growth of her vegetarian food range. Of course, I'm a huge fan of the Linda McCartney food range, and not only does eating it allow me to stay on brand, but my mum's actually allergic to the particular fungus they use in corn, so corn's definitely off the menu in our house. But what was on the menu back before I was born? Well, by 1991, there were only six products available in her range, but with the addition of cauliflower and broccoli potato gratin, deep country picks, vegetable wedges, Spaghetti Bolognese-style mincea, packs of sausages, sausage rolls and a canoa stir-fry, there were now 13. In 1992, Ross Young's, the manufacturers, reported a total UK sales figure of 14,580,000 servings, which is fucking loads, actually, with 6 million being spent on Linda's food at British supermarket Tills. Not a bad little learner, right? And it's even better when you consider that a large percentage of those buying it would undoubtedly have been meat eaters who were looking for an alternative food source and found one. But still, it could have been a lot better. Upon seeing the worm start to turn and vegetarianism start to rise, three other brands began competing for shelf space with Linda, meaning no single supermarket would stock the entire Linda McCartney range. At the most, a shop would only have three or four competing items no matter who the manufacturer was or what the product was, you know, which is a problem that still persists to this day. But, like I say, the main point to take home here, folks, is that Linda McCartney Foods was doing better than ever. The head of Linda McCartney Foods, Tim Trahan, who was described by Linda herself as one of the main men in her life, had this to say when talking about her and her involvement in the company at the time. She is still as involved as before. It hasn't diminished. We have food meetings with her every month and she remains very much involved and enjoys doing it. In fact, as we've had success, she's gained confidence and is more and more excited about the future possibilities. I don't think anybody, when this all started off, really knew exactly how far it would go. It began as a small cottage industry and has grown into a substantial business. Everybody in the team is very pleased for Linda because she's very dedicated, very keen and very supportive. And it's nice for her to see her ideas get off the ground and turned into a success. In all countries, 
all the statistics indicate that there is less meat being eaten. So the Linda McCartney range will go onward and upward. And just doing a little bit of statistics research here live during the recording, in 2016, Linda McCartney Foods made £26.7 million onward and upwards. Annoyingly, though, corn does seem to have cornered the market and really overtaking the original vegetarian brand as in 2016 they made £137.4 million here in the UK. Come on, Linda, get back up there. Next up in Linda-based news, we have her latest photo collection. On the 13th of October 1992, saw the release of Linda McCartney's 60s Portrait of an Era, a book which presented a number of select photographic portraits of rock legends from, guess when, the 60s, including but not limited to Hendrix, Aretha Franklin, The Rolling Stones, The Who, McCartney, Lennon, B.B. King, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Ray Charles, The Beatles... The Grateful Dead, and Otis Redding. But it was not just all photographs, there was a little bit of text in there, and it was written in the form of interviews with Linda by one Stephen Turner, who would go on to write A Hard Day's Right, the stories behind every Beatles song, and the gospel according to the Beatles, the former of which I just so happened to own. Two copies of, for some reason. Swiftly after the release of the book, along with its positive reception and promising sales, the photographs were then taken on a museum tour. Linda's exhibition of the 60s, Portrait of an Era, was held at the Royal Photographic Society Bath from the 9th of October, at the David Fancy Gallery, Los Angeles, from the 3rd of December, at Hamilton's Gallery, London, from the 26th of January, all in 93, and in Australia in the spring. Each exhibition ran for approximately a month and was met with great success. Rather surprisingly, we actually have a third entry for Linda in this episode, and this is her equine-based sequel film titled Appaloosa. Now, I hear many of you out there going, Sequel? I didn't even know she had made any films. Well, unbeknownst to me too, several years prior, she had produced an MPL television programme called Blanket's First Show. Uh, which detailed one of her Appaloosa horses, the titular Blanket, who was bought by Linda when Wings were touring in the USA in 76, taking part in its first competition, and it was shown several times on the BBC, back before streaming. (laughs) And the sequel, simply titled Appaloosa, followed the same TV route, and then was later issued on video together with Blanket's first show. Half an hour long... Appaloosa shows Blanket, his full name actually being Lucky Spots Blanket, showing off some more at another competition. The director of both Blanket's first show and Appaloosa was Barry Chattington, who for 20 years had already been making films for the McCartneys, the majority of which still largely remain unseen by the general public, including a film about shooting the cover photo for Band on the Run, a film about the end of the 1975-76 world tour, the Rockestra film, as well as the recently released The Bruce McMouse Show. When speaking of the movie, Chattington said the following, When we made the first film, Blanket was only two or three years old and very frisky. I think he had a go at biting all the crew, but now he seems to have calmed down a bit. 
I really think that Appaloosa works very well. It shows the horses off very well, and even though the dressage is a difficult bugger to shoot, we were all very happy with the result, Paul and Linda included. As a fan of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, I was delighted to read that the soundtrack for Appaloosa contained nothing but unreleased music. Being that it was Linda's film, we actually got a lot of music directly from her, including two different recordings of Love's Full Glory, a song which would later appear on the White Prairie album. The first version of Love's Full Glory was recorded with Wings, and later augmented by steel guitar player Lloyd Green, and the second being a later version performed by Linda along with Mick Bolton and Ian Maidman. There was also an unreleased instrumental version of I Got Up and Appaloosa Jam, composed by Linda and recorded by her and Blair Cunningham earlier that year. Paul also features for a new recording of a song called Blanket, which he composed especially for the film. Going back to the Liverpool Oratorio for a second, there was also a classical piece that was written by Linda called Appaloosa, which was a song written by herself in the 70s, not recorded so much as it was just whistled around the McCartney household, but just after Christmas, Paul reunited with his oratorio partner Carl Davis and arranged Linda's tune into a full-blown symphony orchestra. They worked it into two movements, between which they dovetailed a new classical piece, especially composed by Paul, subtitled Meditation.
And finally, we have a little update concerning LIPA, aka the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, which was founded by Paul McCartney and Mark Featherstone-Witty after they were introduced to each other by none other than George Martin. McCartney had known since 1985 that the building which housed his old school, the Liverpool High School for Boys, was becoming increasingly derelict after the school's closure and wished to find a productive use for it. Featherstone Whitty had set up the Brit School in London and was looking for an opportunity to open another school. The process setting up the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts took seven years and another £20 million. Of course, at the Liverpool School for Performing Arts, students can basically learn acting, art, you know, performing arts, you know, working out yourselves. However, by 93, this time in our story, a team of architects had to be brought in to begin further urgent refurbishment of the old institute. Like, it's a 1800 building. It's a Dickensian building, I believe. It really was in a state of disrepair. The target 12.4 million worth of funding was fortunately acquired very quickly with some strings attached, some not, with MPL itself donating 1 million, the British government by its City Challenge programme giving 4 million, uh, the European Commission offering a similar sum, and even a donation made by the Queen herself. Right, folks, that was pretty much everything I could find on Paul and Linda and what they were doing between Flowers and this point. And so now it is time to move on to topics concerning the album itself, you know, the stuff that you actually want to hear about. And we're going to start off with the musicians themselves. Of course, for anyone keeping track, these players are more or less entirely the same as the ones that appeared on the last album, bar one. Unless you count Elvis Costello in that mix, but... Uh, we'll be talking about him shortly later on as well. But yeah, it really does make sense that Paul would be getting the gang back together in this sense, that you know he would be reusing the same crew. And why not? He had a relatively successful album with them the last time he worked with them. They were also on his latest live album, his Unplugged album, and they were his official touring band. There is a real sense of unity and connection here that we're really not going to see again from Paul. With his current touring band, yes, they do appear on his on, on his projects, but they're never the fixed band. Whether it's Paul doing stuff solo or working with different musicians, um, there's going to be a slight disconnect and distance with his touring band. And that just keeps things fresh, you know, but... In this period, at least, there is a real continuity and canon that I do find to be quite endearing. But yeah, this episode is going to be long enough already without me going over old ground. So if you want more detail on the majority of the players, go back to the Flowers in the Dirt episode. But let's get into the new kid on the block. Drummer Chris Witten, who dazzled us with his crazy beats and solos on songs like Coming Up, sadly chose to leave the band and instead join Dire Straits, which put Paul in pretty dire straits, I imagine. And so Paul had to find a new drummer in the form of Blair Cunningham. Who is Blair, I hear some of you ask? Well, I've always kind of seen him as the Steve Holly of the first McCartney touring band. As not only was he 
really, really good and really energetic and add a new kind of flair to the band. But he also only had one album, two if you include Unplugged, and one tour before Paul moved on and reinvigorated the band after the death of Linda. Although, like Steve Holly, this poor timing is really no one else's fault but fate itself. Born on the 11th of October 1957 in Memphis, Tennessee, Blair is the youngest of 13 children and his oldest brother, Kelly Cunningham Jr., taught all of his brothers to play the drums. Another brother, Carl Cunningham, was the drummer with the Bar K's for Stax Records, though sadly he died in the same plane crash that killed Otis Redding in 67. But yeah, enough sad stuff, enough bibliography. What credits did Blair have that got him the gig? Well, let's go to his discogs to find out. Firstly, he was a mainstay of The Pretenders, a.k.a. the same band that Robbie McIntosh originally hailed from, with both of them appearing, along with a cameo from our boy Wixie, on their hit 1986 album, Get Close. So, already you can imagine how easy it was for Paul to grease the wheels to his favour in this situation. Anyway, some other pre-McCartney credits to Blair's name include a roster of artists I've never heard of, including Denise LaSalle, James Bradley, or Bradley, The Controllers, Fern Kinney, Oscar Perry, Jesse Winchester, and Haircut 100. However, I did do a little bit of a double take when I saw several credits of Blair's for an artist called Robert Johnson, as I was like, surely the... The now 63-year-old Blair would have been far too young to work with an artist who sold his soul to the devil in the 1920s. But, as it turns out, this chap is Robert A. Johnson, not THE Robert Johnson. LOL. It was towards the end of 1990 that Blair, who was actually in Liverpool of all places at the time, received a call from MPL. He says... I flew down from Manchester and was driven to Paul's studio, where I sort of auditioned along with three other drummers. We just jammed. I came down twice, and then the job sort of became mine. We did a couple of TV things first, one of which just before Christmas 1990, which was Wogan. I sensed that something was happening right before we went on. Paul called a band meeting. He said, We were really excited listening to you play the other day. Do you want to join the band? So I said, Yeah, all right. Someone made some tea, and then suddenly I got an attack of the nerves. The cup and the saucer were shaking, and I had to go to the toilet to throw some cold water on my face. When I returned, they said that they'd been joking, and that I wasn't in the band after all. I felt like a lost kid, and my face dropped. But this, I later found out, was the real joke. I really was being invited in although it took several phone calls from Richard Ogden to convince me that they actually meant it. So I discovered straight away that you've definitely got to have a sense of humour to be in this band. When speaking with Club Sandwich number 66, Paul had the following to say about Mr Cunningham. Blair's a really smashing drummer. He comes from a long line of drummers. All of his brothers are drummers, and all of his nephews are going to be drummers. We met his mum actually in LA, and she's really nice too. Blair doesn't get too complicated with big solos, and his feel is great. He also has a great personality. He's always smiling and willing to work, and that means a lot. That means a lot. Um, it's quite telling that Paul didn't want a drummer who 
has big complicated solos, which does seem like a reference to Chris Witten, I guess. Don't want to read too much into that. Of course, in the same interview, Paul also spoke about all of the other members of the band, and I thought that these quotes would be an appropriate little nod to all of them. I don't want to completely cut them out of this section. Starting off, we have The Light of His Life, his muse, his Lindiana, a.k.a. the lovely Linda McCartney, who was the second keyboard player, I guess would be the most accurate way to describe her role. He said, Linda's in the band as a friend, not for some high degree of musical prowess. But that's alright, because sometimes you can get too slick and too professional. A lot of music I like, particularly early rock and roll, is very unprofessional really. Simple stuff recorded. Linda plays the keyboard and does harmonies. Her voice blends really well with mine, and also Hamish's. Even when I worked with Michael Jackson, he would request that Linda did the harmonies. People make fun of her, and she gets picked on easily, because all the others are real professionals, but I like the quality and little special ingredients she brings. Next up, we have lead guitarist Robbie McIntosh, and Paul had the following to say. Robbie's a really good guitar player too, who I've noticed for a long time, who I think really comes to the fore on this album. He's very good, very authentic, very funny. I mean, he knows the complete works of Tony Hancock or any British television series, particularly the ob obscure ones. And what's very handy is that he knows all the Beatles songs, as he was the right age to learn them all through the 60s. Sometimes I'll ask, what's the chord? And he'll say, I always thought it was A minor. And I'll reply, yeah, that's right. Then we move on to backing guitarist, backing singer, and sometimes bassist Hamish Stewart. Hamish is a real soul singer. I think our voices blend amazingly well when we sing harmonies. He's also a really good guitar player too, so if I'm ever looking for some rhythm guitar parts, he's the obvious person to give them to. He used to play a lot of rhythm riffs in the average white band, and again, he's really keen. He's always up for whatever you're doing. He's good to work with, and he's a good friend. And finally, we have the real crown jewel that keeps the whole production moving forward, and the only member of this band to remain in Paul McCartney's touring band to this day, Paul Wix, Wixie Wickens. Wix is technically very good, and also a really nice bloke. All of the people in the band are really nice, actually, which is something I tend not to mention, but it's certainly a key factor. We all get on very well. Wix is also like our MD, musical director, so, if we have to rehearse, he'll take us through it. He's like the boss when it comes to rehearsals, because I'm a bit lax. Any excuse to have a cup of tea, me. So he's kind of like our slave driver. He's also a great pianist, and comes up with some very original ideas. On hope of deliverance, he's playing guitar, too. Now, that is not to say that these will be the only musicians appearing on Off The Ground, as Paul always has a nice heaping of session musicians to round the sound out, but I'll be mentioning them if and when during the recording sessions section. But yeah, a nice little quick segment there compared to the last episode, though I reckon we'll be back to a lengthy deep dive when we come to Flaming Pie, whenever we get to it, maybe in the year 2047. Right, now that we've gone through who was playing on the album, it's time to talk about the man that brought it all together and produced it. Off the Ground is an album where the production is brought up almost as much as something like Press to Play, and... That is down to the work, or maybe lack thereof in some people's opinion, of one Julian Mendelssohn. Now, I just want to give a huge shout out to the people who made Club Sandwich, particularly for this episode, because 
Club Sandwich number 66 not only gave us all that information on the band, but it's also going to give us the full skinny on Mr. Mendelssohn himself, his process, and his experiences working with Paul. And so I'm going to be citing it numerous times during this section as well, as it is just, you know, chock-a-block full of stuff that you'll never find on Wikipedia. So let's start off with who the hell Julian Mendelssohn is. Well, born in Melbourne in 1954, Julian Mendelssohn grew up harbouring a desire to work in the world of recorded sound, although he was unable to achieve his objective at home because when 17, he left Down Under with his family to move over to England. This is a quote from Julian. He recalls, A schoolmate and I used to hang out around Bill Armstrong Studios in Melbourne quite a bit. We both became interested in recording at the time and built our own first studio together. We were only 13 then, and we were very thrilled when we had a double-glazed window put in for the control room, even though there were loads of holes everywhere else. I played classical violin at school, and I used to play a violin-shaped bass guitar, like someone else I could mention. Unlike his, though, mine wasn't a Hofner. My mother had made it for me. It was the only way I could get her to let me play guitar, because it was shaped like a violin. And what did Julian busy himself with before joining forces with Paul? Well, on his Discogs page, it's clear that Julian was not just a producer, but also one of the top go-to guys in the business when it came to doing remixes of other songs, particularly for things like 12-inch maxi-singles, that kind of thing. Artists that Julian did remixes for prior to McCartney include, but not limited to, Peter Gabriel, Kim Wilde, Go West, Nick Kershaw, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Musical Youth, and The Psychedelic Furs. Then, in 1986, either after or whilst Paul was still working with the seemingly rather difficult or at least incongruous Hugh Padgham, Mr Mendelssohn was tasked with doing remixes for two B-sides, namely Tough on a Tightrope on the 12-inch issue of Only Love Remains, as well as It's Not True for the 12-inch issue of Press. These two gigs would seemingly go down very well indeed with Paul, but as it turns out, again in Club Sandwich number 66, it was actually Wixie himself that first suggested that they use Julian to produce the whole album, aka Off the Ground. Now, when you consider that Paul's entire live sound and atmosphere and musical direction is almost entirely down to Wix and the fact that this was an album that did indeed have to be one that could be toured, this is quite the compliment. When speaking about how the album had to be toured and had to be, you know, one that the band could actually play, Julian said the following, again in Club Sandwich 66. One of the principal aims in making the Off the Ground album was... One of the principal aims in making Off the Ground a band album was to make a record suitable for taking out on the road. And we achieved that aim. All of the songs can be played on stage. Some were completed in less than 24 tracks of tape, others used two machines and probably 30 or 40 tracks, but the band had already proven to be very good at playing them on just six instruments. Anyway, back to production. Let's have a look at some of Julian's full-on production credits prior to Off the Ground. Of course, like all producers, he has many technical and engineering credits that predate the majority of this stuff. But in terms of him being an official head honcho, here are the pies he had his fingers in. 
He was a producer for Machinations, Models, The Associates, Killing Joke, a.k.a. Youth's Punk Rock Band, A Certain Ratio, Liza Minnelli, Dusty Springfield, Level 42, and The Pet Shop Boys. He did loads of stuff with The Pet Shop Boys, including one of my favourite songs of all time, It's a Sin. So yeah, it would definitely be the last two on that list that Paul would have been most interested in, as they were both rather massive here in the UK in the late 80s and early 90s. Anyway, unlike the Hugh Padgham fracas, I really didn't have any revealing tea or gossip when it came to their working relationship. I mean, the reason Julian was probably never used again was more due to the death of Linda than any actual behind-the-scenes stuff. As per Paul was talking about with the band, being a nice guy is what was most important to him at this point, and I reckon Julian Mendelssohn fit that description to a T. And when he was just describing his time working with McCartney, he said the following. Most of the time it was just fantastic. I always try and keep a good atmosphere in the studio anyway. That's just the way I work, on the proviso that you've got something to do when you get down to it. And co-producing with Paul was a very democratic process. I wouldn't make any decision without him, and he wouldn't make a decision without me, and we rarely disagreed over anything. But yeah, let's just get out of the production notes for a second and just talk about the production itself, because this is an album that seemingly seems to rub a lot of fans the wrong way. Now, is this an album that is produced badly in any objective sense? No, not at all. So, what is it that people don't like about this sound? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with previous and future albums, because you have this large section of the fan base that hated the supposedly overly 80s style of press to play, which was then followed by a very classically timeless sound from Flowers in the Dirt. For folk in this camp, the incredibly clear and clean-cut off-the-ground style may be a little too technical, too modern, or overtly precise. Then you have the camp who are in love with the modern production of Flaming Pie. You know, it kind of is the Abbey Road of the McCartney era, taking it into the next generation of production. And by comparison, the sound of Off the Ground may be a little too hollow, unrefined, and lacking in finishing touches. However, I would argue that the truth is somewhere in the middle. First of all, this album is quite stripped down in nature. It doesn't have many gimmicks and flourishes that a normal McCartney album might have. It was also partially recorded live, so there is a lot less room for post-production shenanigans. And the fact that it was produced in the early 90s means that it lacks the clearly defined 80s sound uh, as well as the clearly defined modern album sound. So, for me... It seems that Off the Ground is stuck between a rocker and a hard place. You know, not really making any of the larger fan bases within the McCartney community very happy at all. I mean, the early 90s sound, things like Britpop or hip-hop or, you know, that kind of real bubblegum pop sound, really isn't that present here. And I think that's what leads to people seeing it being kind of bland because it doesn't follow any of the current pop trends at the time it's just McCartney being McCartney and so therefore there isn't anything to like hang off it there aren't any quick fire quips or 
platitudes that you can throw at this album. It does kind of exist within its own world. And because of that, people get confused. They don't know what to think. I mean, personally, I find the production of this album to be very interesting indeed. It's got this very ethereal, very mercurial sound to it. It really doesn't remind me of anything else in the McCartney canon at all. And that uniqueness is brave and important in itself, and it really shouldn't be overlooked. Julian Mendelssohn's job on all of these songs is stellar, really. He really does them all justice, and... Whilst the songs themselves might not be all in the top 10% of McCartney's canon, they're all given their fair due. So I think a lot of the criticism, if not all of the criticism towards the production of this album, is either based on false pretenses or just misguided. Okie dokie everyone, now that we know the who's who behind this album, it's now time for the what, as we are now going to go through the recording sessions here. And boy, oh boy, is it full to the brim with trivia. Now, something that I've always wanted to do in my album reviews is to include more quotes from Paul about specific songs. However, since the majority of my album reviews are now done with a guest, mostly with Ken Michaels, that means I can't stop and read a dozen plus quotes from Paul as it would just kill the natural flow of the conversation. Go back to my Venus and Mars episode with Ken Michaels if you want to know what I mean. So, as late as this feature is, I'm now going to insert all the quotes that I'd like to include in an album review in these recording sessions. So, this is a lot about the songs themselves, as well as when they were recorded and where. But let's just talk about where Paul was in, a, in his headspace going into these sessions. Because in a world where the last three albums were all reasonably successful and popular and discussed in the music scene, it can be hard to imagine that Paul's confidence was anything other than tip-top. But, in an interview that he gave with Club Sandwich, number 65, Paul goes into explicit detail about several of his insecurities concerning the approach to this album. When discussing whether he needed to be heavier, grittier and more rock and roll, Paul said the following. I'm never really aware of what my image is, but when you've done songs like Yesterday and My Love and The Long and Winding Road, an image sort of grows on you. I think the truth is, though, that anybody who really knows what I've done over the years doesn't think of me like that at all. People who know me well know that I wrote Hell to Skelter, Why Don't We Do It in the Road and all sorts of disgraceful stuff. I've done some gritty things. I've tended to be known as the cute one in the Beatles, and these things tend to stick, but I don't mind. It's just an image, and you've got to have one image or another, but I'm glad that this album doesn't adhere to that, and maybe gets me away from it. I mean, when I did the Russian album, someone said to me, I didn't know you sang like that, and I thought, well, where have you been for the last odd 20 years? Just a little tangent there, folks. I think that quote there really does go back to my point about the production of this album as well. You know... Off the Ground really doesn't adhere to the typical Paul McCartney album format, and that's why people are a little confused about how they feel about it. And maybe Paul thought that that was going to be a good thing, maybe it was at the time for fans, but clearly a lot of people didn't agree with him. In terms of other psychological maladies, it was clear that Paul was very self-conscious about the lyrics and lyricism of his work, and 
Maybe this will be touched upon in the upcoming lyrics book next month. Ha! We know that barely anything from Off the Ground is going to be in that book, but whatever. When defending, uh, I mean, discussing the words for the songs from Off the Ground, Paul felt it necessary to let us know that he really was trying more so than usual. He said... When I came to do this album, one of the things that I thought might be good would be to be a little less casual and make sure I'd done my homework, make sure that I liked all the words in the songs. So I got a friend of mine, a poet called Adrian Mitchell, to look through the lyrics as if he were an English teacher checking my homework. He didn't hate anything, but there were one or two little moments where he suggested a change. In Come On People, I had written, We've got a future and it's coming in. And he said, Do you want to use a stronger word than coming? Do you want to describe it? So I sat down and rewrote, We've got a future rushing in. It seems like me to be rushing in and charging in, which are the two words I use there. So that was great. I went through it all with him, and now I can say that they're poet-proof. Now, this part is just adorable to me, because so often you hear people say, Ah, Paul's the melody man, he doesn't write very good lyrics. Lennon was the great lyricist. And maybe, like Paul talking about him not being perceived as heavy or gritty or as a rocker early on just then, maybe the cumulative effects of years of people saying he's not a very good songwriter finally hit home, which is very strange because the lyricism on Flowers in the Dirt is some of his most consistently strong, so I don't know why it hit him now, like, more than any other period in his career. But hey, at least we can't act like Paul has never read our criticisms or anything like that, or has ever done anything to change elements about himself. However diddly do, I would argue that the magic of the McCartney formula is down to his very casual, laissez-faire approach to songwriting. That's where a lot of the magical ambiguity comes from, wouldn't you say? Anyway, going back to what I said about the album having to be performed live and the fact that the latest project this whole band worked on was a live album, a.k.a. Unplugged, well, this directly informed the entirety of these sessions. How so? Well, it resulted in a large majority of the tracks being laid down and produced as a live recording, which makes total sense as this is what the group had been doing and been doing to a notable success, especially in the charts. Producer Julian Mendelssohn describes the process as thus. We always tried to record the band live so that everyone would be on their instrument at the same time Paul would be singing live. The aim was to get a complete performance for each song and very rarely replace anything. Normally these days, you'd get the band to do a backing track, keep the drums and then replace everything else bit by bit. But we tried to do the whole thing in one go. There are also quite a few completely live vocals on this album. Now, does this album scream live when you listen back to it? No, not really, especially the first time you go through it. Though, when you do listen to it a second, third, fourth time and pick out bits with a fine-tooth comb, you can definitely get what they were going for. I mean, for me, anything without clapping crowds rarely sounds that live anyway, and what with Paul's cheeky overdubs on Wings Over America, the live McCartney sound has always been a little more dubious anyway. But again, I hate to harp on about this, but this factor is definitely one of those things that contributes as to why this album is so wonderfully unique within the McCartney canon. Anyway, on to the sessions themselves. 
The first recording session for something that would eventually appear on this album would be for the song Wine Dark Open Sea, when Paul would go to the studio on September 1st, 1991, though this was only to lay down the demo and little else was done as far as I can tell. Now, one of the other standout notable elements about the off-the-ground sessions was the fact that they began with a protracted series of rehearsals at Paul's own Hogs Hill Mill Studios between November 25th and December 6th, 1991. Now, as far as my research shows, Paul has never really done this before or since. I mean, from the Flowers in the Dirt sessions all the way back to the Beatles, aside from running through the track a few times with whatever band or co-writer he was working with at the time, Paul has pretty much always done everything live on the day. Like, the only times we've ever heard of rehearsals would be for something like a large-scale tour. You know, we saw them for Wings Over the World, for the cancelled Japanese tour, the 89-90 tour, and the upcoming World Tour. However, the -the off-the-ground rehearsals were not just about running through the tracks for the sake of it, as they actually came out on the other end with actual product to show for their efforts. And so, because of this... The first two songs ever taped for the album in full, Biker Like an Icon and Peace in the Neighbourhood, were actually laid down entirely during said rehearsal sessions. This is what Julian Mendelssohn had to say about these particular recordings. Two songs on the album, Peace in the Neighbourhood and Biker Like an Icon, were actually recorded during rehearsals. Bob Crushaw, my engineer, and I set up some mics to get a feel of the room and to enable the band to hear how it was going. Then, around early Friday, when we came to record these two songs properly, we listened to the rehearsal tapes, and they were so fantastic that we didn't have to bother. I think we may have redone one part on Peace in the Neighbourhood, but Biker Like an Icon appears on the album exactly as it was recorded, within an hour at rehearsal. It's my favourite track on the album too, a real rocker. Fantastic. Glad to see that Julian's got some sense when it comes to the quality songs on this album. But... Let's hear Paul's take on this little oddity of a recording session. He said, Biker Like an Icon is the first take, and there are a couple of others too. Peace in the Neighbourhood is also a rehearsal take. We were just kicking numbers around so that the band would get to know how they went. And we just got a nice, really casual take of Peace in the Neighbourhood. We thought later we could make it a little more professional, and we tried to do it a couple of times, but we never got the same vibe again. It was a little bit too stiff, So we listened again to the rehearsal take, and it was fine. I really love the drum sound on it. As for Biker, it's such a simple little song that you can ruin it if you go over it 50 times. Everyone understood how it went, and Robbie must have had some idea what he was doing on the slide guitar because he just delivered a solo. I didn't tell him what to do, he just felt it. When we came to the studio to record this album, I thought back to the favourite times I'd ever had in a recording studio, and it was the best with the Beatles stuff, where we were restricted by time and had to work fast. In one day we did I'm Down, I've Just Seen a Face, and Yesterday, and they were pretty good tracks. I mean, you never do three tracks in a day now. We did get it near to one a day when I came in, and said to Julian Mendelssohn that we should knock off a couple of songs that day, and we did get a couple of nice tracks. On to the main run of recordings now, and Off the Ground began with lengthy sessions that lasted from December 1991 to July 1992. Now, do I think that this was a solid block of recording? No. I am sure that there were holidays and various other breaks and projects during this period, but regardless, they certainly cut the majority, if not the entirety, of what would become the final album here. 
and we're going to go through it right now. They're recorded off the ground. And here's what Paul had to say on Off the Ground from Club Sandwich number 95. He said, Yes, well, right at the end of doing the album, Wick said to me, We've worked very naturally on this album, but one thing that we haven't tried is the computer thing. And I said, Well, I really don't want to waste a lot of time on it. And he said, Well, you might want to spend a day on it, though. For a change, just do something a little bit different. Now that we've already gone through most of the album. So I thought, yeah, it might be fun, actually. So we gave the rest of the band a day off. And just me, Wix, and the production team went into the control room for the day. That's where you mainly do your computer stuff. One of the songs that had been on my list that I hadn't gotten onto the album yet was Off the Ground, which by that time was just a little folk song. I liked it, but it really didn't fit on the album. So I thought, if we were going to play around a bit and experiment, maybe even waste a song, we might as well do it with that one. So I brought it in, and we started to kick it around. We soon started to get a rhythm track in the computer and changed the song direction a bit and made it a little more exciting. Then I said, okay, let me go in and put a little heavy guitar on it. So we really then started to enjoy it. We'd put a bit of a bass machine on, we started to make it a little more funky, and then percussion. I then sang it and it really started to come together as a track. By the end of the day, we pretty much finished it with just a few little harmonies and a solo from Robbie still to come. It's so mad that Off The Ground was not initially considered to be part of the main album. Because not only is it the lead track and one of the singles, it was the album's namesake, for God's sake. And when speaking in the book The Beatles, The Dream Is Over, Off The Record Part 2 with Keith Badman, Paul gave the following little anecdote. I happened to be speaking with my daughter, and she said, What did you do today, Dad? And I said, we did this song, it's called Off The Ground. And she said, ooh, that's a great album title. So, I don't even know what this project was called until he'd finished that song, one of the very last in the sessions. So, yeah, very interesting indeed. Then they also recorded Looking For Changes, Hope Of Deliverance, and Mistress and Maid. Apparently, a 15-piece orchestra was used to enhance Mistress and Maid, conducted by Carl Davis, who had previously collaborated with Paul on the Liverpool Oratorio, as well as the Appaloosa soundtrack. Now, the quote we have on this particular musical edition is not from McCartney himself, but from Hamish Stewart instead, who said the following. That one's a little complicated. Paul and Carl Davis took the tapes of my guitar and Robbie's guitar and wrote horn arrangements around the lines that we were playing. It really works because it's a matter of embellishing what's already there. So, yeah, clearly Hamish and Robbie listened to the very basic backing track demo kind of thing that Paul and Elvis Costello were working on during the Flowers in the Dirt sessions and then pretty much rewrote it and did something a little bit more complex and a little, something with a little more flair. And I like how Hamish, with not so much humility, said that the reason the orchestration sounds so good is because of the work they did with their guitars. Let's just quickly hear what the original sounded like. She said, come in, my dear, you're looking tired tonight. Your bath is drunk, let, let me, me loosen your tie and fix you your usual drink. He settles back and takes a magazine. 
kicks off his shoes as he studies the fall of every soubrette. So where are the flowers that he used to bring? on the page come to life and they'll get the flowers that he used to bring every endearing remark remind them of passionate promises he'll never also chimed in on this collaboration and he's a figure who I'm sure we're going to talk about in greater deal in a future episode he said this was really reversing our relationship because Paul had a very clear idea of what he wanted the song was already written and recorded for me it was a simple job he said to me I would like to have this brass ensemble and I'll tell you exactly what I want it to be he came he came to me as the composer and I just did the rest other songs included I Owe It All To You, Golden Earth Girl, and The Lovers That Never Were, the other Elvis Costello song. Paul had this to say. A few years ago, Elvis and I got together to see if we could write a few songs. First, just to see if we could stand the sight of each other, or if we annoyed each other too much. I fixed one of his songs up, and then he fixed up one of mine. That led us to find that it was quite easy and we enjoyed it. So, one day we decided to write one from scratch. The question was... Where do we start? We had a whole musical universe to choose from. A rock and roll song, a love song, what would it be? So I said, well let's start off with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Let's think like them. So we started off, and The Lovers That Never Were came out. It was our first song together. We did a nice but very rough demo of it. Just Elvis and me. But when we tried to do it again, properly, it didn't really work out. So I ignored it for Flowers in the Dirt, and decided to try it again for this album. And we thought about bringing in a 4-4 bass drum over a 3-4 song, which really made it swing. It's an old rhythm trick, but it made it come alive, and then we had a version that we liked. Let's hear that demo right now.
Other songs recorded in these sessions were Get Out of My Way, Wine Dark Open Sea, Come On People, Long Leather Coat, Sweet Sweet Memories, Big Boys Bickering, Down to the River, I Can't Imagine, Style Style, Kicked Around No More, Soggy Noodle, and Cosmically Conscious. Of course, Cosmically Conscious had already been written sometime in 1968 during the Beatles' stay in Rishikesh, with the lyrics being directly inspired by their mentor at the time, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who frequently used such expressions as the title itself, Cosmically Conscious, and It's a Joy Joy. The version that ended up on the album was a bonus, quote-unquote, hidden track that was put at the end of Come On People, with some silence in between, and the full version was released as the B-side 
for the off-the-ground single. Winding things back a little, we have a trio of smaller sessions that didn't involve the entire band. On Monday the 18th of May, 92, Paul went back to the studio to record some overdubs for Golden Earth Girl, specifically at the Hit Factory Studios in London. I cannot be sure, but I imagine these sessions were where flutist Susan Milan and oboe player Gordon Hunt recorded their parts. Then, on Monday the 30th of June, again 92, Paul went back to EMI Studios to record some overdubs for Come On People. Fortunately, Macca had a lot to say about this track. I think of it as very 60s, a bit beatly. I used to resist any Beatle influences in my writing, thinking that I'd done that bit in my career, and that maybe I should go now and do something completely different, but that means denying some stuff that might be very good. I mean, I've got a reasonable claim to the Beatles style, so that there's probably nobody out there who's going to bother if I, George or Ringo, don't do stuff in the Beatles style. So, that's the way I left Come On People. I finished it up, and it became, I think, a very optimistic song. It's the same idea, that if enough people get together and tell politicians how we want this world to progress, and I think it's beginning to happen. By the way, we can make a difference. As you may know... The great George Martin was involved with the production and the arrangement of the orchestra with this track, and so of course Paul had something to say about it. We'd recorded the track Come On People, and were quite pleased with it. It came quite naturally. Our engineer, Bob Crowshower, was ill. He had the flu, so Julian Mendelssohn, who used to be an engineer, did both jobs that night. We thought we'd fix it when Bob came back in, as so often happens in these situations. But we got a good take. Then, we thought we'd like to have an arrangement done on it. It was one of those songs on the album that felt like it could have an orchestra. The rest of them felt right with just the band, but this one, it needed to go a touch bigger to make it more of an anthem. So I called George Martin, and he was very sweet. He said, are you sure you want to use me? Because he was almost trying to retire now. And I said, of course I want to use you. It would be brilliant. We'd work the same way we always did. Sit down together and decide what to do. Then you'll write and conduct it. So we did just that. We held this session at Abbey Road. He got up on the rostrum and conducted like a young man. He put all his spirit into it, and it was lovely. Halfway through the session, he just leaned over and said to me, Super song, Paul. That is praise indeed. Later, Wicks noticed on the score that George had written Come On People, arranged by Paul McCartney and George Martin, 30th of June, 1962, and then he'd crossed it out and changed it to 1992. It was like a Freudian slip. He just went right back. I think he did a great job, and it really enhanced the track. Then, on Friday the 17th of July, still 1992, Paul would be back in Hogs Hill Mill again to do some overdubs for Hope of Deliverance, specifically the recording of three Latin percussionists. The artists in question here were David Giovanni, Dave Patman, and Maurizio Ravalico? Ravalicho? Rather interestingly, the latter... Maurizio had detailed this session in the book Paul McCartney Recording Sessions 1969-2013 to by one of our previous guests, Luca Perazzi. He said, We were invited to McCartney's private studio in Sussex. They had us listen to the track that was already completed and mixed, giving us some generic instructions. We only learned that they wanted a Latin flavour on the song, so we brought to the studio an entire instruments van. We were in the studio for half a day, Everything went smoothly and quickly, but without any pressure. 
Both McCartney and Mendelssohn were wide open to our suggestions, and they did not give any indication about our instruments or the playing style. Then, after a two-month or so break, in September of 1992, Paul and the entire band got back together at Hogshill Mill for another series of heavy-duty recording sessions. Due to the live album feel of the previous recordings, these sessions were likely, in my guess, rather similar to the last three, where it was the band mostly touching up and refining the songs from before. Although there were several new songs recorded at this time that are also worth touching on, so I guess it might not have been as lightweight as I just made out there, but who knows. Also, it should be pointed out that these sessions took place after the Calico Sky sessions that took place on September 3rd, 92, aka the day of my birth. Now, why am I mentioning these sessions, besides, you know, inserting myself into the story? Well, mostly because the engineer for those sessions was Bob Crawshaw, the engineer for the entirety of Off The Ground. I think I've mentioned him a couple of times already. And so, it practically makes the three songs, Calico Skies, Great Day, and When Winter Comes, borderline canon recordings for the album, and... You know, even possible inclusions for an off-the-ground archive release. And I think it's worth pointing out that Paul could have chosen to add any of those three songs to off-the-ground, or at least introduce them to the band, but chose not to. Weird, eh? Also, also, in the final month of the sessions, Paul and the band were filmed recording for the album, and the finished product was a 27-minute film being the aforementioned Moving On, something I intend to cover with Andrew Dixon one day, and it appeared on Channel 4 on the 18th of April 1993. This documentary also includes scenes during the making of the music videos for Off the Ground and Come On People, something that I will no doubt one day be discussing with Ed Chen. Anyway, back to the sessions. For this chunk, they recorded Off the Ground, Looking for Changes, and Hope of Deliverance, I know we just spoke about the overdubs, but yeah, here's Paul's point of view on the topic. I went up to the attic of our house just to get away from everyone. There's a trap door. You go up a little ladder and then you close it and no one can get to you. So then, you know you've got a couple of hours to yourself. I went up in the attic and took me a, a Martin 12-string guitar and just for a bit of fun, I put a capo on it. The little bar that comes halfway up the strings and changes the length of the guitar neck. On a 12-string, it makes it for a very jingly sound, which reminds me of cathedrals and Christmas. So that led me into the field of hope, hope of deliverance. And then I added it about the darkness that surrounds us. You know, if you're involved in rescuing people in Somalia, then that's the deliverance. You want to get out of there safely. If you're involved in poverty, then that's your deliverance to get out of that trap. Homelessness, disease, whatever, big or small, we've all got them. So... That's what it was about, really. It just became a kind of optimistic song, either to perhaps a girlfriend or to a god figure. I do like leaving things ambiguous. I've done that often in my songs, so that people say to me, I've always thought it meant something else. There's also another aspect of Hope of Deliverance that I do want to briefly touch on, even though we will inevitably do it again during a Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, and that's the Steve Anderson remixes. These remixes were literally the first moderately obscure Mac of vinyl that I ever bought, and as far as I'm concerned, they must be a part of the off-the-ground 
box set or archive collection as much as any of the B-sides. But what are the Steve Anderson remixes? Well, to put it simply, rather like youth, Steve Anderson was called in to do some remixes of some of the music created for Off The Ground, and he came up with two very lengthy tracks, both titled Deliverance, one on the A side and one of the B side, and they contain all 12 songs from Off The Ground. They were basically stripped down and rebuilt from the ground up. And yeah, it does sound suspiciously exactly like what Paul and Youth did with the first Fireman album, but they also created a lot of new music for that as well, and I think there was less new content, I guess, on these Steve Anderson ones. And whilst I cannot honestly find any link between the two outside of that, it still makes me very suspicious that they would exist or coexist side by side at the same time. And it kind of makes me also wonder whether Steve Anderson was meant to be in Youth's position at one point. Maybe McCartney just liked what Youth did more. Who knows? But also like The Fireman, the Steve Anderson remixes were not advertised as being part of the McCartney canon. And they did a lot of work around the club scene, both here in the UK and abroad, and achieved moderate popularity. More so than The Fireman did, I might add. Especially, you know, with people doing lots of E in Manchester around that time. And it wasn't until a significant time later that it was revealed to be Paul, again, by MPL. And by that time, it was then re-released on vinyl with Deliverance on side A and the other Deliverance on side B, with Hope of Deliverance also being the final track on side B. Other songs recorded in these sessions were Mistress and Maid, I Owe It All To You, Biker Like An Icon, Golden Earth Girl, The Lovers That Never Were, and Get Out Of My Way. When speaking on this number, Paul said, That really was an attempt at writing a straightforward rock and roll song. A lot of people will tell me that they're often the hardest songs to write, even though they sound very simple. To get them to sound authentic is difficult, so I just put the character in a car, and he's basically talking to the blues, saying, Get out of my way, don't tell me what to do. I know what's happening, I'm going to see my woman tonight. So, it's kind of a rock and roll love song. Onto some other tracks, we have One Dark Open Sea Again, Come On People, Long Leather Coat, which was actually written by both Paul and Linda McCartney, something we really haven't seen since, like, Ram or Live and Let Die. There was also Sweet Sweet Memories and Big Boys Bickering. Of course, Paul was certainly going to have something to say about this song. This is a quote taken from the New World Tour booklet of all places. It was hard revisiting Tokyo after my drugs bust. It was a kind of an exorcism. We knew that we had to go there for the tour. The first few nights we had strange dreams and screaming headaches. But while I was there, I wrote Big Boys Bickering, and for the first time in a song, I used the word fucking, which I knew would upset some people. I think it's my first protest song since Give Arma Back to the Irish. I've avoided them, thinking that this is for politicians, or sometimes I can just say it in interviews. You have to be very incensed to find the inspiration to do it right. I think there's a bit of John Lennon inspiration in this one. It's Lennon-esque to my mind anyway. John wouldn't have thought twice about saying fuck in a song. But if you think about the ozone layer being depleted, a 50 mile hole over the world, that's going to kill us if we don't do something about it. 
And then you think about what happened at the Rio summit. Do you think of that as a flipping hole? Or a fucking hole? I'm proud of it. I'm not a teeny bopper. I'm an artist. I've written serious stuff before, and I'm writing it now. You don't like it, don't buy it. He continues here in Club Sandwich number 65. I don't usually write swear words in a song, because it can sometimes seem a bit gratuitous. Like, you're just trying to shock. But then again, I don't go normally for songs about animal experimentation. And when you're in that kind of hard area, words start creeping in. I'm certainly not a great user of swear words in front of the kids, but occasionally, like in Looking for Changes, it's essential to the plot. Really, the only strange thing is that I haven't done it before. I mean, I played Big Boy's Bickering with the F word to Paul Simon, and he said, Have you ever used that word before? And I said, No, but that doesn't matter. I think I'm allowed to use it once in every 50 years, don't you? Once every 50 years, I'll use that word. Stick around for next time. Rounding out the sessions, we also have Down to the River, Soggy Noodle, Cosmically Conscious, I Can't Imagine, Style Style, Kicked Around No More, Peace in the Neighbourhood, and Keep Coming Back to Love, which, rather interestingly, this is another duo credit song from these sessions, and it was written by Paul McCartney and Hamish Stewart. Eventually, it would end up as the B-side on the Come On People single, rather like how First Stone was the B-side for this one from the last album, or at least one of the editions. If only Hamish had survived the first band cull after Linda's death, then maybe he could have had an actual album track. But, then again, think about how long it took Denny Lane to achieve the same thing. Now, you may have noticed during that lengthy segment there that there were indeed a rather large amount of songs recorded during these sessions, almost as if that there could be some sort of double album, possibly. Now, whilst I am not here to comment on the quality of the tracks that never made it onto the final track listing, as I do intend on doing a cheeky little bonus episode on the bonus tracks with Ken Michaels, keep your ear to the ground for that one, but what I do want to point out is that quite a few of them made it onto the B-sides of various 7 and 12-inch singles that came out with the album. I mean, there were so many that none of the songs from the abandoned Phil Ramone sessions made it onto any pressing. Instead, we'll have to wait for Flaming Pie for all of that. When speaking of the wide variety of songs to choose from for the final track listing and how they were chosen, producer Julian Mendelssohn said the following. When the album was more or less finished, Paul conducted a poll and the most popular choices out of the 23 went onto the album. I didn't vote because I was busy remixing a track, but Paul worked it all out based on people's marks out of 10 for each song. I know that this won't have been recorded on paper anywhere. Maybe it was, I don't know. But wouldn't it be great to see what songs got what marks from the band? I mean, Paul likely would have given each track 10 out of 10, regardless whether it made it onto the album or not. But still, I'd be so interested in seeing what everyone else's thoughts on everything else was. Like, for example, I can't imagine Paul was too pleased that Big Boy's Bickering didn't make it onto the final album. And... Yeah, I know I'm not here to give my thoughts on the B-sides, but I'm pretty shocked that Wine Dark Open Sea beat a lot of the stuff that didn't make it onto the album. But yeah, a conversation for a future episode. Anywho, after all that prep work, recording and presumably a lot of behind-the-scenes fine-tuning that never makes it into the history books, Off the Ground would eventually be released to the public on the 2nd of February, 1993. Now everyone, let's move on to the album cover, because there's oddly a lot to talk about with this one. 
Of course, this was a section of the episode that I used to forget in the early days of the show, and I'm glad it's here again, as not only is there a side series I've been doing with the wonderful ladies over at Another Kind of Mind and One Sweet Dream, so, you know, I want to have more content to make room for episodes with them, but it's also a chance for me to flex my own self-professed artistic leanings. i got to say, this wasn't a cover that I was particularly looking forward to covering, though, especially when compared to the other ones, purely because of the relative glut of material available surrounding its creation. When speaking in Club Sandwich, Paul gave the following explanation of how the album cover came about. Once we had the title off the ground, I kept getting this image in my head of a very plain cover, perhaps a landscape or something, but I wanted the band to be in it too, because it's a band album rather than a Paul McCartney solo album. So, instead of having us all just standing there, I had this idea of everyone vanishing off the top of the CD cover, so you just have the feet. Then I thought, if we took all of our shoes off and we were photographed with bare feet, it would show that Blair is black. There'd be five pairs of white feet and one pair of black, which I thought would be a one in the eye for anyone who was racist. Clive Arrowsmith took the photograph. We all got up on a little scaffold with the feet dangling down. Later, when we looked at the photos, we couldn't even see which one Blair was, which was a nicer payoff in the end. It shows what rubbish racism is. So yeah, it seems that once Paul's daughter had decided that Off the Ground was going to be the album title, the gears were already whirring in Paul's head, and as detailed there, the effect was achieved by taking a ski lift with all the musicians sat on it, and it lifted them just out of frame. Quite effective, really. What he doesn't mention, though, a detail that I'm rather fond of, is the fact that the number of legs is sufficient for each letter of the phrase Paul McCartney to be replaced between them as the image goes from left to right. Which is a wonderful coincidence when you think about it. However, something I do not know is where the image behind them slash below them comes from. We get this wide expanse of deep blue skies and blue water with some green hills rolling in the background and some clouds below them. Like, where is this? If any of you know out there, please hit me up at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or on our Twitter at McCartneyPod. Now, I do want to point out that Paul, the man who would not perform for segregated crowds, who wrote Blackbird, a.k.a. a rather notable figure in terms of race relations, is also a little tone deaf here. Like, you know, of course he's known for going, all right, all right, New Orleans, and, you know, doing all of his less than politically correct impressions. And, of course, I know that Paul absolutely meant no harm with his comments here, but the idea of Blair's black-skinned feet being an irk to racists is just misplaced and strange, a bit like he's using him, almost. Like, it's such an odd comment, and I doubt that that comment will be included in the Archive Collection box set liner notes. Also, if we're going to talk real here, then A, doesn't the fact that you can't tell Blair's legs are black defeat your odd anti-racism idea, and B, if you really wanted to put the finger in the eyes of racists, then why not do what talking heads did and hire a backing band of almost exclusively people of colour, rather than the big old rock and roll white boy fest, you know? Again, don't get me wrong, I'm not having a pop, I'm just needlessly fixating on an element that I found to be particularly confusing. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of moving on, the off-mentioned 1993 documentary features a section where not only do we get a very nice part where Paul describes what he wanted for the cover, as well as showing the original concept doodle, which is very reminiscent of the Magical Mystery Tour story wheel, but it also contains footage of the actual photo shoot itself, where you can see them all in the stairlift. It's great stuff, and I love it. 
it was really cool to see them achieving such a simple effect in real time. And yet, for those of you suffering from a little deja vu, yes, the person who took the cover for this is the same Clive Arrowsmith who did the cover photography for Band on the Run, the Let Em In Boy Am I We Love single cover, the Wings at the Speed of Sound album cover, and the Wings Greatest album cover. So yeah, he's certainly prolific in the realms of McCartney artwork, and from McCartney's reaction and candour in the documentary, it seems like he did another damn fine job with his frequent collaborator. But what do I, in my very finite, limited wisdom, think of this particular artwork? Well, first of all, I've got to say it's certainly a step up from the last few major releases from Paul's camp. First of all, it's far more timeless and an enduringly captivating image than either Broad Street or Press to Play, which admittedly isn't all that hard. But, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that it isn't anything that dates this album to being from the 90s or any other time from that matter and you know I consider it to be a far more successful cover in that sense I also really like the colour you get a wonderful spectrum and array of blues and purples on this cover and it does a wonderful job of highlighting just how fucking beautiful the sky above us really is and I really appreciate how it's not taken from the ground like it's like the, even the camera itself is off the ground because you can see the clouds below you like they're really high up here also for a man like Paul who's getting a little more environmentally minded in the public sphere it makes sense that it would have a cover displaying the splendor of nature but upon reflection it's also quite odd that he doesn't do it more really however just like the last album cover this is an image where the concept is a little too on the nose for me like, on the last one, there was a line about flowers in the dirt. The cover featured flowers in the dirt, albeit in a very ugly paint spread. And this one is called Off the Ground. And ta-da, we have feet off the ground. Though, I would argue that the concept isn't taken far enough in some ways, as it clearly looks like they are all sat on the same surface rather than floating away in the air. Like, I know, it's kind of hard to do that in a single image, but... The other photos taken around this time, I think possibly for the off-the-ground music video, which feature Paul flying with guitar in hand and ropes trying to quote-unquote tie him down, is a far more effective and evocative image. And, you know, Paul could have done that with the whole band as well, rather than just being him on his own. But that also brings me to my next point, because you really can't look me in the eye and tell me that there wasn't an element of Paul wanting to hide his stark middle-agedness with this album cover and album covers from, from this point on. Like, you know, I probably should have noticed this with the last album because that doesn't feature him either. But the fact that that was a commissioned painting obscures that somewhat. But it's clear from this point that Paul does not want to show his ageing face on album covers anymore. And the best we're going to get is his feet, pictures of him as a young man, or heavily distorted images of his face. And no, the rear cover of McCartney 3 does not count, as that's the rear cover, and it was not even on the standard issue of the album, only exclusive versions that I am yet to get. Going back to the positives for a moment, the rear cover is also pretty damn interesting. First of all, I love how we get the reverse image of the feet present here, it's not the same image copied and pasted onto a new background. But yeah, the standout here is the colour palette, those gorgeous Golden browns, caramels, yellows, oranges are just stunning to behold. And there's a part of me that almost wishes that this was the front cover. Going back to my hatred of the Flowers in the Dirt cover, I must point out that this is how you do a brown tone image without it looking literally like shit running down the street. 
Of course, the idea that the front cover is the day and the rear is the sun going down is a nice idea artistically, but I'd also be interested to see what they would have done with the night sky, like maybe with their feet illuminated against the light of the moon or something like that. Anyway, sadly folks, I do not own a physical copy of Off the Ground, so it wasn't until very recently that I even saw the rear cover for Off the Ground, but it wasn't until today, the recording of this episode, did, until I realised that there was also a gatefold image in the centre when you open it up. It was designed by one Eduardo Paolozzi, whose only other credit on Discog that I can find is the graphical artwork for Red Rose Speedway nearly two decades prior. It seems like he was more well-known as a sculptor in the rest of the art spectrum, and he simply knew Paul through said arts, you know, you know, meeting Paul at various luncheons and dinners and cocktail parties, that kind of thing. The inner artwork itself is a series of photos of the band taken by Linda on the left, and a collage of various images of the band, mostly from live performances, all mixed up in an array of colours on the right. The background is also a sideways close-up spread of the lyrics for the title track. Now, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you, it's hardly the best inner gatefold in the entire McCartney catalogue, and in terms of collages, it ain't a McCartney 1 or 3. And without belabouring the point, I just find it without any visually dynamic focal points. Like, it's just not very interesting, and the colour palette is so muted and boring with these weird, dirty purples and ugly yellows. Like, it's really just not that pretty at all. So yeah, overall, I like the front cover, but I don't love it, and the inner sleeve needed a bit of work. Okay, everyone, now we're going to move on to the segment that I introduced far too late into this podcast series, mostly because I, by the time I started addressing it in its own special place in the episode, McCartney had really stopped being the guaranteed number one powerhouse that he was till the mid-70s. However, I would argue that discussing why McCartney isn't at the number one spot in this period is far more interesting and challenging than to simply declare how awesome Venus and Mars is for the 20th time. Of course, we are really not in the 70s anymore, as this is Paul's first foray into the 90s, at least in terms of proper studio albums. So, how did he do? Well, the lead single, Hope of Deliverance, was released on the 28th of December, 92, Disappointingly, it barely reached number 18 in the UK, and in the US it only got to number 83 in the Billboard 100. Though, in fairness, it did do better on the dreaded grey-beige adult contemporary charts, reaching a far more respectable position of number 9. Number 9, number 9. Now, whilst this single largely stumbled in the US and UK charts, as will the rest of them, spoilers, However, Hope of Deliverance achieved far more commercial success elsewhere. It was McCartney's first international hit since Say 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 in 83, cracking the top five in over five European territories, except his homeland, and selling over 250,000 copies in Germany alone. The second single was Come On People, and it was released on the 22nd of February 93. Now, I think rather indisputably, Hope of Deliverance was a strong choice, for the first single, but why, oh why, oh why, was Come On People of All Things Chosen as the follow-up? Like, yeah, Paul cites it as being Beatlesque and George Martin's on it, but come on, it really isn't a toe-tapper, is it? I mean, I shouldn't have to argue that point too much, as its position at the paltry number 41 in the UK speaks volumes, really. Didn't do anything in the US, for that matter, but it did manage to break the top ten in both the Netherlands and Italy. The third single was 
Off the Ground, which was released on the 19th of April, 93. And the only information I can find on this one is that it reached number 27 on the adult contemporary chart in the US. Don't know if it even charted here in the UK, which is a shame, really, as it is one of the better tracks off the album, and it would have made a better second single. Anyway, the final track we had was actually one of my low-key favourite songs on the album, Biker Like an Icon, and it was released on the 8th of November, 93, a full 210 days since the release of the last single, long after any momentum had been lost, and a whopping 315 days since the release of Hope of Deliverance. The only sales figure I could find for this track was that it reached number 62 in Germany, and again, that's why the fucking vinyl is so expensive, the, the, the 12-inch at least, with all the extra songs on it. Um, there's a lot of jukebox versions of Biker Like an Icon that are available out there, but I don't really, I don't really want the proper thing, you know. Anyway, anyway. As we learnt from the last album, a.k.a. Flowers in the Dirt, it doesn't matter how bad the singles fare, because the album can still do reasonably well, it can still shift. So, how did the bigger chunk of vinyl do? Well, in the United Kingdom, the album itself debuted at number 5, and quickly fell off the chart, spending only 6 weeks inside the top 100. In the United States, it peaked at the number 17 position on the Billboard 200, within the first week of sales, only generating... 53,000 copies. It was on the chart for only 20 weeks, although it did go gold, meaning a total sale of 500,000 units. Again, like the singles, despite suffering from lackluster sales in the UK and North America, the album fared much better in other key markets such as Spain. In some countries like France and Japan, it was able to actually surpass Flowers in the Dirt in terms of cumulative sales. And in Germany, Off the Ground had been McCartney's best-selling album there to date spending 20 weeks in the top 10 and eventually achieving platinum for shipments of over half a million copies. Hmm, seems like this is a much more successful album in Europe. Maybe it's got more of a European flair to it, I don't know. But it also reminds me of how the Put It There single was released by McCartney and did very well in European markets as well. Perhaps they were trying to capitalise on that sort of popularity, but I never knew Paul was so big in Germany. But... Also, that's probably why the <laughs> Off the Ground, The Complete Works uh, double CD with all the bonus tracks and stuff was only released in markets like Germany and the Netherlands. Here's a quote from Rolling Stone that perfectly sums up the attitudes of people living through the 90s and how they were perceiving these rock giants and the sales trends of the time. It reads, No acts will ever rule the rock realm so completely for so long as the Beatles and the Stones. Times have changed. Attention spans have shortened owing to video exposure resulting in careers with the trajectory of a Roman candle, rigid radio formats, the corporate trivialisation of rock's mission, and the sheer accumulated mass of music, both old and new, being thrust at listeners. These days, the sales go to the likes of Michael Bolton, Garth Brooks, Boys to Men, and Chris Cross, whilst living legends like McCartney, Jagan, Dylan... Morrison and even Bruce Springsteen are considered elder rockers in Valhalla, where they bask in critical favour and do good tour business whilst watching their new work hobble and fall off the charts. I mean, this year there really wasn't much room for McCartney in the charts. Maybe if he released 20 different coloured vinyl variations of the album it would have done better, especially in Germany. Uh, probably not though. 
Um, they, I mean, let's just have a look at what was in the charts this year. Weirdly, ironically, Eric Clapton's unplugged album, his own one, was the fourth highest selling album worldwide that year with over 26 million copies sold. The rest of the rock scene had also changed considerably with albums like 10 by Pearl Jam and Core by Stone Temple Pilots cracking the top 10 albums sold that year. Rap albums were also the new thing with The Chronic by Dr. Dre and the Wu-Tang Clan's self-titled album also being in the top sellers of 93. Again, Paul is not getting anywhere near those sorts of numbers and the marketing department at MPL, at Capital and Parlophone really weren't they really weren't doing their job really. They weren't able to sell this to uh, you know to the public and I guess it's because the McCartney fandom really wasn't sealed as a worldwide entity yet. There really wasn't much hype around any of this stuff and you know this is pre anthology, this is pre-death of George Harrison, so there's a lot less reverence for McCartney at this point. And also, fundamentally, it wasn't the album that people wanted, so of course less people bought it. But yeah, quite the shame to see Off The Ground do so poorly. And now finally, everyone, we come to the last segment of today's programme, which is the critical reception where I get to finally eschew my opinions for a brief period before episode two in this series, and we just get to look through everyone else's. Let's see what the world thought of this album, both opinions old and new. Starting off, our first review comes from the Chicago Tribune, and I was so thankful to see another primary source for this album, a review at least, that wasn't just the standard obligatory Rolling Stone review. So many publishing houses need to keep old school McCartney reviews out there for the public, else how am I going to read them? I'm not going to buy a book, for Christ's sake, am I? Even the mighty Rock's Back's Pages didn't have anything on this album, but let's see what the Chicago Chicago Tribune said. Paul McCartney's new album, Off the Ground by Capital, will be out on Tuesday, and it's easily his best studio work in a decade. That's not exactly lavish praise, given the paucity of punch in McCartney's recent albums, but Off the Ground is a solid, sometimes inspired work of pop craftsmanship. Not Everything Works, Biker Like an Icon sounds half-finished, Golden Earth Girl and Get Out of My Way are awfully slight and there are far too many clumsy lyrics, yet there's a pop dazzle aplenty, beginning with the first single, Hope of Deliverance, in which the brush-stroked Latin rhythms echo the Beatles and I love her. There's also an unexpected toughness, Hamish's sly guitar adds grit and buoyancy to the title track, and his crunching riffs drive the animal rights anthem looking for changes, one of McCartney's angriest and most convincing performances in recent years. That veracity carries through much of the album. McCartney has made his career out of making everything seem easy, sometimes too easy, but his cutie pie propensities are now balanced by emotional grit. His vocal technique and command on the bridge of The Lovers That Never Were are a marvel, and the whole of Wine Dark Open Sea is captivating, as McCartney's voice works a simple lyric for every drop of resonance. I do apologise, that was written by Greg Cott, by the way, and published on the 5th of February, 93. Give everyone a shout-out. The next one is written by Park Puterbar, and was written for The Usual Suspects, that are Rolling Stone, one of the few magazines that does bother to catalogue everything that they put out. This was put out on the 18th of Feb, 93, and before I get into this one, I do just want to point out that he seems to spend more of the 
off the ground review, reviewing and talking about Mick Jagger's latest solo record that was put out at the time. I can't be bothered to remember or recall what it was called. But yeah, another one of those very strange reviews where they're doing everything in their power not to review the album they're covering. Here's a segment. In addition to co-piloting the greatest bands in rock and roll history, Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger have something else in common. Both have watched their solo careers sputter. McCartney hasn't placed an album or single in the top of the charts in nearly a decade, and only one album, an unplugged MTV concert, has broken the top 20. There's plenty of ambition, not to mention craft, to be found on both Wandering Spirit, that's what it was called, and Off the Ground. McCartney, fresh from dabbling in light classical with his Liverpool oratorio, imparts a mock orchestral grandeur to his pop sensibility on Off the Ground. While occasionally slow-moving, McCartney could use a boot from the, an aggressive producer, Off the Ground contains some fine songs and sustains a guardedly optimistic mood that conveys faith in the future. Moving on to ultimateclassicrock.com and moving straight into the 21st century from the 2nd of February 2016, writer Sterling Whittaker, great name, writes, There were several tracks whose more interesting bed tracks and stronger melodies were hampered by weak lyrics from McCartney, including the album's first single, Hope of Deliverance, Peace in the Neighbourhood and Golden Earth Girl. And then there were the songs that were just plain bad. Biker Like an Icon was so laughably weak that it not only ranks towards the very bottom of any realistic overall assessment of McCartney, but it arguably shouldn't have appeared on a major album release of any artist ever. Still, the album did have its strengths. Two of the better tracks were left over from the Flowers in the Dirt sessions, Mistress and Maid and The Lovers That Never Were, both of which were Costello co-writes from that period. The anti-animal testing anthem, Looking for Changes, provides a bit more backbone, as did Get Out of My Way, though the latter featured a shop-worn chord progression and arrangement that could have come from virtually any rock singer in music history. In the end, Off the Ground proved more significant as a reason for McCartney to go on tour than it was as an individual musical statement. It fared reasonably well commercially, going gold in the US and in many other countries, but for the average music listener, Off the Ground has been mostly forgotten, and rightfully so. Ooh, kitty got claws there. Ouch. Moving on to a random website that I just happened to come across. This was on the 10th of January 2017 by a blog called The Hokey Blog. Probably never going to feature this again, but I thought it was funny enough. The end result didn't hit the heights of Flowers in the Dirt, but it stayed at a consistent level of agreeableness. The result is a fine-sounding record that slips into an easy-going vibe and settles there from start to finish. Much of it works, parts of it do not, but overall it presents a non-essential but enjoyable album experience from Paul McCartney. The album boasts one strong feature though, and that's a plethora of McCartney pop hooks. The title Trown Off the Ground is a scrappy pleaser, shuffling along congenially with a single-on chorus and a mid-tempo earnest likability. We're going to go on to internet comments now. Rateyourmusic.com user The Real Tagashi writes, Paul does decently well. The songs here are pretty well put together with some flavourful melodies and production which sounds at least a foot outside the admittedly dated 80s production that even plagued parts of Flowers. The ultimate banes of these tracks, though, come with their ham-fisted lyrics and, secondly, in their length. The lyrics here, though, are especially poor, even by McCartney standards. 
I've even been a defender of Paul's lyrics, saying what he lacks in lyrical content, he almost always makes up for in droves in every other facet of songwriting and performance. This has allowed me to brush off questionable Paul lyrics in the past, where some others just couldn't. But here, some of it is egregious. Take the second track, the socially conscious ditty called Looking for Changes, which covers the controversial topic of animal testing. Paul has never been one for subtlety, but come on man, this is the preachiest way to cover this topic possible, C- minus in high school grade poetry at best. The phrase, golden earth girl, female animal, is undescribably grody to me. I suppose the rest is fine enough as it evokes some nature or something, but the Paul McCartney project doesn't even attempt to explain this phenomenon of word association. I mean, it doesn't really need to because Paul played this song only one time in concert in 2006, and that's about it. And on the length, I'm sure you've seen this album is 50 minutes long, and that three of the songs are over five minutes long, with the last one being nearly eight. If this were some other artist like Pink Floyd or something, I'd understand. But this is Paul McCartney, whose material arguably came in at the two or three minute mark. The issue is much more of a nitpick here, though, so take this with fewer grains of salt. However, at least it means we get to hear Cosmically Conscious, a mostly forgotten white album fragment, in a somewhat completed state, although I still think it lacks the attention it might very well deserve. RateYourMusic.com user Grampus writes, Much as I've stuck loyally by McCartney over the years, I'm the first to admit the commitment comes with an awareness of possibly getting my fingers burned. His prodigious back catalogue is littered with potholes and missteps waiting to snag the unwary. Off the ground feels much more misguided than merely substandard, although calling it mediocre feels almost too much of a compliment. Music has always been a means of delivering political, economic and social messages, but the balance between making a point and making music is a notoriously difficult one to strike. In the case of Off the Ground, McCartney's undoubtedly heartfelt sentiments simply overwhelm the, the delicate tunes. The evils of animal testing, the decline of neighbourliness, neglect as a form of social abuse, guileless pleas for universal peace, and calls for the world to press a reset button are all notable targets as the appeal is for us all to be cosmically conscious. But because the songs are flat and uninviting, the earnestness of any message takes on an irritating buzz of an aggravating gnat. Allmusic.com user Rob Leist writes, If there's an underrated McCartney album, this is clearly the one. In my opinion, are not stronger than the touted flowers in the dirt. The only problem is precisely the fact that Off the Ground came after the unexpected flowers and the historic tour that prompted it in 89, a tour much awaited by so many of us. In fact, Off the Ground, released almost four years later, is more complete than Flowers, sounds more direct, less overproduced, and the pop rock songs are very well crafted and consciously made. Not that Flowers' weren't. It's quite a satisfying album, and not as transitional or as off the cuff as its weak public impact would make one believe. Its only problem was the moment it was released as a new pretext to promote another tour. And it's not indeed a problem. The record is there, we can listen to it now, and it's the music we're interested in, aren't we? Off the Ground is delicious, an almost hidden gem. A true present for the listener. And finally, allmusic.com user Jerry Cooper writes, 
McCartney's major appeal for me is that he composes terrific medleys in a variety of styles and usually sings them brilliantly. Sometimes he has an interesting or entertaining lyrical idea to express, but I can live with workmanlike lyrics or even downright clunky couplets if the tune is good enough. I look elsewhere for profound poetry, but the classic McCartney is first and foremost a great tunesmith who can deliver his songs through a magnificent set of vocal pipes. This album contains more than enough well-sung, strong, catchy melodies to deserve a lot more than a 40% mark. Come On People is almost everything I want from a McCartney song. Hope of Deliverance will not be out of place on Band on the Run. Peace in the Neighbourhood, Golden Earth Girl and Wine Dark Open Sea are all delightful earworms that will quickly lodge in your brain. And most of the other songs have their merit too. I will concede that Biker Like an Icon has such a creaky lyric that only those who don't speak English could listen to it without cringing. Likewise, Paul isn't a great preacher and the clumsy earnestness of looking for changes prompts the thought that the first change I'd be looking for would be the lyrics to the song itself. They are decent tunes, but not quite strong enough to overcome the handicap that is Paul's lyrical muse at its least inspired. In summary, Off The Ground is unlikely to convert anyone who hasn't already decided that they don't like Paul McCartney. For the rest of us, it's an enjoyable 50 minutes of Paul in pretty good form. McCartney at three quarters of his best is still much better than the countless others at the top of their game. And there we are folks. Not only are we at the end of the review portion of the episode where we've been able to not listen to my opinions for a brief period, but now we are at the end of the episode. We have finally made it. I've made it. You've made it. It's finally done and dusted. The part one of our look into off the ground as i mentioned earlier in the episode if you're one of the patreon patrons you will undoubtedly have already listened to my conversation with ken michaels where we go through all the songs but that is what we are going to be looking at next spoiler alert i mostly like the album as well and spoiler alert and as no surprise to anyone so does ken thank you so much for listening to this part one folks i know it took a while to come out but there was a lot of research to do as well, and there have been lots of other things going on as well. I mean, I've eschewed talking about the Get Back book and the Let It Be box set purely just to make sure that this is released. You know, no more distractions this time. And I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it has been worth it. And even more so, I hope you are looking forward to part two where me and Ken really get to do a bit of justice for this much maligned album. I hope I've changed a few opinions for you today, especially going into that conversation as well. Hopefully a few things have been put more in context. And like Paul, I do hope for deliverance. This has been another episode of Paul or Nothing, our part one look at Off the Ground. Keep your ear to the floor, look round, shall we say, for part two. That'll be out much quicker than this part one was. Keep listening to Paul, folks. I'm sure Denny Lane is already playing this out by now, but yeah... Peace and love, peace and love, no more autographs.